All right. We are beginning a new chapter in Luke. And actually, we are now coming to the last three chapters of Luke's gospel. And essentially, it's the climax of the story of the life of Jesus. You know, I've read some men who have said that the events that we're getting ready to study about, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's almost as if the gospel writers, when they wrote their gospels, it's almost as if they started here and then kind of worked back as they told the story of Jesus. And honestly, if it were not for the event, the events that we're getting ready to look at here in these these last three chapters of of Luke, uh, the life of Jesus would really be no different than any other man or any other woman uh, who may have lived a noble life and yet suffered a an unjust yet heroic death. But it is what we are getting ready to study in Luke 22 and 23 and 24. Uh, that uh, does set Jesus' life apart from all other men who have ever lived. Uh, For he came with a mission in mind, and indeed he did fulfill that mission. He tells us that mission is, uh, uh, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Uh, It is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that is the watershed in human history. Irregardless of what your historians may say, it is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that is the watershed of human history. When God took on flesh, being born of a virgin, uh, lived an impeccable, righteous life, and through the greatest act known to mankind... He voluntarily uh, offered himself as the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. Uh, Martin Luther King once said, Evil may so shape events that Caesar will occupy a palace and Christ a cross. But one day that same Christ rose up and split history into A.D. and B.C. so that even the life of Caesar must be dated by his name. So the life of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection is indeed a watershed in human history. So what we're going to look at here is Luke chapter 22, and I'm going to go ahead and read the first seven verses. So we have it in our minds. And he says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve, and he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad and covenanted to give him money. And he promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. Okay, so we'll stop right there. Uh, So, the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. Uh, You know, there are those, even those who claim to be ministers, uh, who have taught that the story of Jesus is really nothing more than a legend created by his followers uh, to create this this movement as we know as Christianity. Um, What we are getting ready to read here is not happenstance. It's not a myth created. Uh, This is something that truly did take place in history. 
Uh, What the Lord is soon to fulfill is uh, all that the Passover lamb typifies uh, in regards to deliverance from the bondage uh, of sin. And yet today, I've read this, yet today there are certain men who have crept in unawares into the church that Jude has warned us about. Uh, Even though they wear religious garb, they're preaching a different message. They're preaching a different message. Uh, we've all uh, read all the way back to Luke 9.22, and I looked it up. You know when the last time, you know when we studied Luke 9.22? June of 2019. So that's how long we've been in Luke. A long time. So in, in Luke uh, 9.22, this is what Jesus told his men. He said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. So on multiple occasions, the Lord himself told his men, uh, you know what? Uh, one of these days, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be falsely tried. I'm going to be put to death, but I'm going to rise again. He's, he, he's told his men several times. And now we've come to the place in Luke chapter 22 where that time is just around the corner, just around the corner. You know, when I was uh, still a very new believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I had just received Christ as my Savior. And, uh, you know, I read the Bible uh, because of my new life and because of I was so excited. I read the Bible like I was a starving man in need of nourishment. I couldn't get enough of the Bible. And on top of that, I also read almost everything that I could lay my hands on that was about Jesus, okay? Uh, Some of it good and and some of it not so good. One particular book I came across uh, was titled Jesus the Messiah. I don't remember who the author is. Uh, but the title intrigued me. All right, being a brand new believer, I wanted to know everything I, I could about Jesus. So I got this book and I started to read it. And as I read through this book, more and more of what the author wrote just didn't set well. Uh, it's kind of like what Brian Pastor says about every wind of doctrine it smells, right? False doctrine stinks. And as I was reading through this man's book, I'm thinking, you know what? This is beginning to smell a little bit. All right? But I was still so new in the faith, I really didn't quite know exactly where he was headed. Until finally he came to the place in his book where Jesus was soon to be arrested and crucified. And this is what the author said. He said that the death of Jesus was an unfortunate tragedy that could have been avoided by Jesus if it were not for his messianic delusions. Boy, it really started stinking then, right? According to this man, it was Jesus' delusions in believing himself the Messiah that led him to an an avoidable but tragic death. It was right then I closed that, that book and I filed it away in the trash can because that's where it belongs that's where it belongs you know we've seen in our study of Luke's gospel from the very beginning Jesus knew who he was he knew what he was all about and he knew what his mission was 
Remember when we studied back in 1888, Luke chapter 2? It seems that long, doesn't it? In Luke chapter 2 and verse 48, remember when his folks left him behind in Jerusalem not knowing that he wasn't with them? And they found him. And when they found him, he was talking to the, to the, the religious leaders, the teachers in the, in the, in the temple. Luke 21, uh, 22, uh, 248 says, And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? He knew who he was. He knew what he was all about. He knew what his mission was. He came to be the Passover lamb and to die for sinners. And it's no mere coincidence that he was to die on the Passover. And it's not a coincidence. It's not a myth. It's not a legend that his followers created. It's fact. We know from Mark's gospel that this drawing nigh that Luke mentions... Is just two days away. In Mark 14, 1, it says, And after two days was the feast of the Passover and of leavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. So what Luke is saying here about the Passover is it's just two days away. So that would make this day that Luke was talking about the 12th of uh, Nisan or Abib. It's the same thing. For us, that would be like late March or early April, what we call Easter time. Okay? So here we read, just as Luke tells us, that two days prior to the Passover, the enemies of Jesus were plotting to put him to death. Plotting to put him to death. Uh, one can almost pick up uh, the earnestness about these men. Almost a, a, a desperation because something must be done about this Jesus. Something must be done about this Jesus. Now Luke calls this um, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and which is called Passover. All right? Uh, as I'd mentioned earlier... The actual Passover was observed on the 14th day of Nisan. Immediately following on the 15th day started the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So these two feasts were back to back. So that's why they were referred to sometimes as the Passover. Or in Luke's case, Unleavened Bread Passover. Because they were so close together... That in the minds of the Jews, they were considered as one feast. We do the same thing uh, with um, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's in our country, right? Because those holidays are so close on the calendar, what do we refer to that time as? The holiday season. All right, so it's very similar here with, with the Jews, you know. So the devout Jewish people prior to these feast days, uh, they would be very busy in preparing for the Passover as family and friends would come from, you know, various parts of the country and of the world. And they'd try to find some place to stay. The city itself would prepare. They would clear the roads, make repairs, they would go around whitewashing uh, tombs uh, so that the pilgrims coming into town uh, would know that that's a tomb 
Therefore, they would not unwittingly touch a tomb and become ceremonially unclean, which would prevent them from observing a Passover. So all of this preparation uh, was going about as far as this, these feast days were concerned, Passover and unleavened bread. And that would even be the subject of the teaching in the synagogues, at least for a full month prior to that time. Again, getting everybody into the holiday spirit. Right? Everybody into the holiday spirit. And the Passover was a memorial commanded by God to the children of Israel to commemorate God's delivering them from the Egyptian bondage. And you can read about that in Exodus chapter 12. On the night of their deliverance, the Lord would pass over the homes that had obeyed the command that God had given to Moses that they were to slay a lamb, and then they were to mark the lintel and the doorposts of the home with this blood. And as the Lord passed over Egypt, and when he saw the blood on the doors, he would pass over that home. But any home that was not marked with the blood... The firstborn in that home would die. And there was not an Egyptian home during that night that did not suffer a death. Because their homes were not marked by the blood. The children of Israel were also commanded by God through Moses to be thoroughly clothed, packed up, and ready to leave. Because after the Passover... The Egyptians' haste to get them out of their country would be so quick that they wouldn't have time to pack. They wanted them out then and there. So God said, be packed and ready to go. Because when it's time to go, they're going to want you out of the country. This is also why bread eaten that night was to be unleavened bread, because there was no time to allow the bread to rise. So no leaven was put in the bread, so they ate unleavened bread. And that's why it's part of the feast of the Passover. You ate the roasted lamb in the home, you ate the unleavened bread, you were dressed and ready to go. Dressed and ready to go. Uh, this meal was to be eaten in haste. In fact, Exodus twelve eleven says, make sure you've got your shoes on and your staff in your hand. Be ready to go. In fact, this event was so important in the mind of God that the Lord marked the Passover as the beginning of the new year for the nation of Israel. In Exodus 12, 2, it says, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. You see, Israel was to learn that from this point on, she was to live and behave as a redeemed nation. Their time of bondage was over, and now they were to live as a redeemed nation, sanctified unto the Lord. From henceforth, they would have a new relationship with God in worship, in fellowship, in service, and in holiness. This is why you read in the book of Exodus the giving of the law to Moses. This is why you read in Exodus uh, God giving Moses instructions about how to build the tabernacle. This is why in Exodus you read about the Aaronic priesthood being established and all the sacrifices. Because the children of Israel were no longer under the old life of bondage. 
They were now under the new life as a redeemed nation unto God. Deuteronomy 14.2 says, For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. They were a redeemed people, sanctified unto the Lord. Now it's been said that the Old Testament is a picture book of the New Testament. And I believe that there's a lot of truth in that. Hebrews 10.1 says, For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. So what was a mere shadow in the Old Testament was actually a picture of what was the real thing in the New Testament. Does that make sense? So when the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, he admonished them about their carnality. And when he did so, he reminded them of the Lord's sacrifice on their behalf. And when he reminded them about the Lord's sacrifice on their behalf and delivering them from their sin and that they were to live a life of sincerity and truth, you know what illustration he used? The Passover. He said in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, he says, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He is telling them that Christ our Passover has been sacrificed once offered for the sins of many, according to Hebrews 9.28, to redeem us unto God, and like the unleavened bread that the Israelites ate, we are to have hearts of sincerity and truth, and not live the lives of the leaven of carnality. Now, there were three feasts that the Jewish men were required to observe. In Deuteronomy 16, 16, we read, Three times in a year shall all thy males appear before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose, in the feast of unleavened bread, in the feast of the weeks, and in the feast of tabernacles. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty. So Jesus and his disciples, were, yeah, they were there in Jerusalem in observance of this law. Uh, due to the Passover and the unleavened bread. Now it's interesting. And I have a point for all this, so stay with me. Uh, In the days of Nero, a certain Roman by the name of Cestius, who was governor at the time, uh, took a census of the lamb slain uh, during Passover because Nero wanted to know how many people were in the city at the time. And so he counted 256,000 lambs sacrificed on this particular Passover. So now, how does that help him? How does that help him knowing how many lambs were slain? Well, according to Exodus 12.4, there is a requirement placed upon a household that was to sacrifice a lamb. And in Exodus 12:4 it says, And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count 
for the lamb. Now, it doesn't specifically say how many. So what the rabbis did is they, they got their heads together, and this is what they determined. They determined that the minimum number in the household that would require a lamb would be ten. One person for each plague that God sent upon Egypt when he delivered the children of Israel out of bondage. So the minimum number was there has to be ten people within the house to qualify to have a lamb sacrificed for that house. So if you do the math, what this man Cesus discovered and told Nero was that there were 2.5 million people in Jerusalem on that particular Passover day. That's a bunch of people. Because I think the average population of the cap of Jerusalem was barely 100,000. That's a bunch of people. A bunch of people. Now keep this in mind. With that many people in one place... During one of the main religious feasts, especially one that commemorates the deliverance of Israel out of bondage from a foreign power, okay? And the foreign power at the time of Jesus' day was Rome. There would be an atmosphere that could prove to be very anxious for the Romans and for the religious leaders. The religious fervor coupled with the sentiment behind the Passover when God delivered his people from foreign oppression was often used as a platform by the zealots to preach insurrection. So there was that element also involved during that time. And this religious fervor of the people may have heightened the, le- the religious leadership's desire to do something about Jesus. Because they perceived him as a threat. They looked at Jesus, they thought that they were sitting on a powder keg. And the least little provocation would set it off. You know, the Lord never preached insurrection among the people. He never did. In fact, Jesus preached just to the contrary. He preached that they should observe what the religious leaders told them. Matthew 23, 1 says, Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do, but not ye after their works, for they say and do not. So these religious men had no justification because Jesus never preached insurrection, but yet they were still very anxious, still very, very nervous. What had just happened just a few days prior to this? You remember what we studied when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a colt? And what were the multitudes? What was his disciples saying? According to Luke chapter 19, verse 38, Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The religious leaders didn't forget that. 
They didn't forget that. In fact, if you might remember, they tried to rebuke the Lord. They said, hey, tell your disciples to stop. Stop saying those things. It wasn't because the religious leaders had rejected Jesus as their king, right? You know what they were concerned about? They were concerned about Rome getting wind of this and sending troops into the streets. That's what they were concerned about. And that's why I think there was this anxiousness as far as the religious leaders are concerned with the Passover coming just two days away and they're plotting what are we going to do we've got to do something about Jesus so now I'm getting into the lesson (laughs) all of that is preparation as we look at these verses what we see are three groups preparing for the Passover we see the world preparing for the Passover We're going to see the devil in hell preparing for the Passover. And then we're going to see the Lord of heaven preparing for the Passover. In our study today, we're going to look at the world prepares for the Passover. Luke 22.2, and it says, And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. According to Matthew 26:57, this meeting was held in the palace of Caiaphas. And Caiaphas was the high priest of the Jews. So we see this plot to kill Jesus goes to the very highest place. So as these men sat in the oval office of the high priest, they put their heads together to devise a way to take Jesus in such a way that it would avoid causing a riot in the streets because they feared the people. They didn't want to have two million people start a riot in the streets. And these men, like all corrupt men in power uh, perceived in Jesus a threat to their authority and to their system a threat to their authority and to their system turn to John chapter 11 in John chapter 11 we're given kind of an inside look at, at one of these councils in John chapter 11 we see the religious leaders gathered together and Caiaphas is right there with them. In John eleven forty seven, it says, Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. And not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Then then from that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death. 
So clearly, in spite of the miracles performed by the Lord, in spite of the good deeds and the good words he had done among the people, these corrupt and envious men looked upon Jesus as a threat to their place first and then the nation. Proverbs 14.28 says, In the multitude of people is the king's honor, but in the want of people is the destruction of the prince. You see, the real issue with corrupt people in power such as these men is that they erroneously view themselves as the nation and not the people whom they are to shepherd. These men were poor shepherds. These men's interests lay in their own power, in their own prestige, and in the perks of their position. They weren't looking after the good of the people. In fact, they held the people in contempt. In the eyes of these men, the people were deplorables. He held them in contempt. The prophet Isaiah prophesied and preached against such. He said in Isaiah 56.11, Yea, they are greedy dogs which can never have enough, and they are shepherds that cannot understand. They all look to their own way, everyone for his gain from his quarter. Though religious in dress, they were worldly through and through. Worldly, through and through. They abused their station for personal gain. They failed in their stewardship. That was a a part of their office. A verse in Mark 6.34 says, And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people and was moved with compassion toward them. Why? Because they were a sheep not having a shepherd. They were a sheep not having a shepherd. These religious leaders were failing the very people they were to shepherd. The Lord had compassion on the people. And this is what endeared him to the people because he is who? The good shepherd. The good shepherd. He was doing what these men should have been doing. Jesus came preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but these men did not want what they perceived that Jesus' kingdom had to offer. Why is that? Because they had their own kingdom that they were happy with. And Jesus' kingdom clashed with their kingdom. That's the problem. That's the problem. And as far as plotting Jesus' death, this is nothing new with these religious men. They've been plotting Jesus' death for quite some time. They've been oftentimes attempted to to bring Jesus to a point where they could uh, have him either stoned. They tried that one time, remember? Or push him off a cliff. One of the reasons why they were unsuccessful is because of what Luke says here. They feared the people. Matthew 21.45 says the same thing. When the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. And when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for prophet. They feared the multitude. See, this is why corrupt leadership 
seeks to control the people either by force or or misinformation or by some other means because they know that once the people are wise to their corruption, the people won't sit still for it. People won't sit still for it. And what was Jesus doing through his ministry? He was revealing their corruption. He was revealing their corruption. Jesus was very popular among the people. The people believed that Jesus was like one of the great prophets of old sent from God. His miracles and his words were eagerly heard and received by the people. In fact, there was one time that the people wanted to make Jesus king. John 6.15, when Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself. Jesus knew their motive is wrong, that's why he hid himself. That's why he did not allow this to happen. So with this in mind, we can see why these men were nervous and anxious about Jesus. They had to find some way to destroy Jesus. Their motive was purely political and worldly. Mark's gospel uh, puts a little more insight on this. In Mark 14.1, it says, After two days it was the feast of the Passover and unleavened bread. And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might take him by craft. Take him by craft. This word craft means to ensnare someone through trickery or chicanery. That's a fancy word, isn't it? These men never seem to learn. (laughs) Because they've tried that before, haven't they? They've tried to be crafty before with Jesus. To either have him arrested or or discredited in the eyes of the people. Did it ever work? No, it never worked. I think Albert Einstein is the one who said, um, Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting different results. These men kept trying to craftily trap Jesus and it never worked and they're still trying to do the same thing. See, that's what happens when you become infected with hatred and prejudice. And these men definitely were infected with a hatred that came straight from the pit of hell. Proverbs um, says... Proverbs 5.22, his own iniquity shall take the wicked himself and he shall be holden with the cords of his sins. He shall die without instruction and the greatness of his folly he shall go astray. Unbeknownst to these men, they were doling out enough rope that would eventually hang them. They were so blinded by their hatred and their wickedness. If these men were going to be successful in their folly, they had to do so when the people didn't know anything about it. And that's how corrupt men work. They'll do their wickedness when people are unaware of it, or they'll do it in such a way that when it happens, it's too late for the people to do anything about it. That's how corrupt men work. These men didn't want to do anything on the feast day. They wanted to um, 
do it afterwards because they knew the tensions and the emotions were high during this period of time and they certainly didn't want two million plus people rioting in the streets because of what they were plotting to do I believe their plan was to wait out the feast day and after the Passover and after the unleavened bread uh, feasts were over with then they would put their plan into action then they would arrest Jesus undercover then they would destroy him they wanted to do it on the sly as soon as the multitudes had gone home that was the time to strike that was the time to strike now I said that there were three preparing and in this first group what we have is the world preparing for the Passover because we see in these Religious men, though they may have appeared religious, they were worldly through and through. They were worldly through and through. Turn to Psalm 17. Psalm 17. The psalmist in his day had to deal with these same kind of people. Psalm 17, starting here in verse 8. Here's the psalmist praying to the Lord. He says to the Lord, keep me as the apple of the eye, hide me under the shadow of thy wings. From the wicked that oppress me, from my deadly enemies who compass me about. They are enclosed in their own fat, with their mouth they speak proudly. They have now compassed us in our steps. They have set their eyes bowing down to the earth. Like as a lion that is greedy of his prey, and as if, and it, and as it were a young lion lurking in secret places. Arise, O Lord, disappoint him, cast him down, deliver my soul from the wicked, which is thy sword. For men which are thy hand, O Lord, for men of the world, which have their portion in this life, whose belly thou fillest with thy hid treasure, they are full of children, and leave the rest of their substance to their babes. One can certainly apply what this psalmist experienced to our Lord's own experiences in regards to these wicked, worldly, religious men who are now plotting his death. And this has always been the tension between the worldly and the godly, between the secularists and the religious from the very beginning. Worldly men or women, whether they're dressed in suits or in priestly garb, are always in opposition to God's will because they want their will to be done. Though these men uh, plotting uh, murder wore the garments of the religion, these were worldly-minded men. Their hearts were in the world. Their concerns were in the world. And they wanted to preserve a worldly system. Psalms 73 6 says therefore pride compass them about as a chain violence covereth them as a garment their eyes stand out with fatness they have more than heart could wish they are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression they speak loftily they set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue, tongue walketh through the earth that was these men 
And I'm sure what Jesus said of them still stung in Matthew 23, 27, when he said unto them, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye are like unto a whited sepulcher, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. This is what Jesus kept exposing with these men. They're being corrupt, and they didn't like it. Even though they may appear to be religious on the outside, inside they were spiritually dead. And don't think that those kind of men don't exist today, because they do. Caught up in ceremonialism, caught up in the pretense of of religion, but their true love is right here in this world. Right here in this world. You might remember in your D1 lessons, when Jesus made it very clear about these kind of guys... Remember he said remember we in, in D one there's two families two families in the world. John eight forty four, ye are of your father the devil, and the less of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth. That's exactly what's going on here, guys. Because there is no truth in him, when he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he's a liar and the father of it. These religious worldly men were just like their spiritual father, the devil. Mark 8.33 says, But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan. We remember the story, right? Peter didn't like the idea of Jesus being crucified. He said, No, no, that shouldn't happen. But what I find interesting is what, Peter, is what Jesus then says after this. And he's addressing Satan. And he says, For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. That's insightful. Like father, like son, these men were plotting murder. Their motive was to preserve their place in the world. And attempting to do so, they were going to do so under subterfuge or chicanery. That's lying. That's being dishonest. They were going to hide their deeds from the multitude. Like their father, the devil, the devil they savored the things of men and not the things of God. So just because someone dresses up or sounds religious doesn't necessarily mean they're the genuine article these very men these chief priests and elders would soon make their loyalties well known when they had Jesus before Pilate in John 19.15 when they cried out away with him away with him crucify him and then Pilate asks shall I crucify your king you know what they said the chief priests, these men who are plotting Jesus' death, we have no king but Caesar. The world, whether religious or secular, does not want Jesus as their king. And one of these days, very soon I believe, they will have a Caesar. And that king will lead the world into perdition. Now, don't be fooled. 
irregardless of what you hear, don't be fooled. The world hates Jesus. And on top of that, in hating Jesus, guess who else they hate? Anyone who belongs to Jesus. Now, Jeff, where in the world do you get that? Well, Bible. John 15, 18, if the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own, but because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. You see, the world, whether religious or not, is not very keen to the fact, or to use their language, uh, keen on your personal opinion, that there's a holy God who sits upon a throne in heaven, and one day this old world's going to be held accountable for its wickedness. They don't like to hear that. They don't like to hear that. This kind of God doesn't fit in their theology. Uh, their theology is a, is a God uh, who really doesn't have authority over them. And uh, he's also a God that really doesn't have a specific moral code. Why do you think they're trying to remove the Ten Commandments out of some of our government buildings? The God they accept is one, whether it's a he or a she, right? That loves everyone and accepts everyone just where you're at. Their God does not view homosexuality as a sin. They don't view covetousness as idolatry. Uh, They believe that their God uh, believes that fornication is acceptable as long as it's between two consenting persons, no matter the age or the gender. Is that not what we hear? And the very idea that God would send anyone to hell is simply repugnant. What kind of God would do that? I don't know. I'm sure you guys may be aware of this. This past Friday, October 23rd, the Washington Post reported in a surprising announcement, Pope Francis told a documentary filmmaker that same-sex couples should legally be covered by civil union law. The Pope's response suggests a softening of the Vatican's view of the issue, which for centuries has contended that homosexuality constitutes sinful behavior and that gay marriages would not be allowed in the Catholic Church or recognized by the Church as a normal family relationship. Goes on, however, Pope Francis's new message on this issue of same-sex relations may be coming as a result of a seismic shift in the way that many Catholics, especially Catholics in the United States, view homosexuality and the legal recognition of same-sex marriage. In fact, U.S. polling data offers little to suggest that the Catholic Church, and I would dare say other churches as well, would face significant backlash by changing the stance on what was once a centerpiece of the culture wars. So in other words, it's not the word of God that establishes doctrine among the worldly, but the, but the public opinion of man. That's where we're at. That's where we're at. The world, whether religious or secular, finds it stupid or crazy or absurd that Bible-believing Christians teach that mankind is a fallen creature uh, because of his sin, and the only way to be reconciled to God is under the blood of Jesus Christ. 
In fact, many find that repugnant. Repugnant. Uh, They believe in a God who looks at their good works and judges or grades on a curve. So that means almost anybody gets into heaven. They believe in a God who accepts anyone who's sincere in what they believe. And not necessarily what the word of God has to say. The reality is that the worldly person, whether religious or not, hates the God of the Bible considers the God of the Bible an offense to them and in turn hates anyone who believes in this God. That's just the way it is. And so what we have in Luke 22 is this religious leadership plotting and biding their time, waiting for the right opportunity to have their will done concerning Jesus. But not yet, not on the feast day. We don't want to start a riot. So their reasons are not spiritual reasons. Their reasons are worldly, pragmatic reasons not to kill Jesus on the Passover. Just the way the world works. When it's opportune for them, whether it's right or wrong. Now, the one major flaw in these plans, and it's true with any worldly men, is that they left God out of the equation. They always do. They always leave God out of the equation. Because God had a different plan here. It was his will that the Lamb of God would indeed die on the day of Passover. It was his will. And this uh, Lamb of God would die on Passover and and be the perfect atonement for man's sin. As I'd mentioned earlier, Jesus had been preparing his disciples for this day. Matthew 26, 1, it says, And it came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Now, going back and thinking about the the Passover again, the children of Israel, when they splashed that blood on on the lintel and doorposts of the doors in obedience to what Moses told them to do, what they were doing was they were placing themselves under the protection of that blood. Exodus 12:23 For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians and when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and on the two posts side posts the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come in unto your houses to smite you So they were placing themselves under the protection of the blood Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that type John 1.35, this is John the Baptist looking upon Jesus as he walked and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. Have you put yourself under the protection of the blood? That's a question that we all must answer. We all must be very sincere and honest with ourselves 
Have I put myself under the protection of the blood of the Lamb of God? Because I'm telling you, there is no other protection available. That is the only way that you will be safe. Jesus knew that he must die on this day in fulfillment of the prophetic type established by that first Passover day in Egypt so long ago. His death was no accident. His death is not a legend. His death is not an avoidable tragedy, but it is the fulfillment of God's plan according to the scriptures. Isaiah 53, 7 says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. Jesus knew that his hour was soon to come and he would voluntarily offer himself like a lamb led to the slaughter to be the propitiation for the sins of the world. 1 John 2, 2, and he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now Jesus, I believe, is the only man alive who knew that his hour was coming. He knew that hour. But none of us know that hour. None of us. We don't know that hour when we will stand before the Lord. Now the question is this. Will you stand before the Lord as him as your judge? Or will you stand before the Lord with him as your savior? That's the question that has to be answered. These worldly religious men prepared for the Passover by plotting the death of Jesus. They feared the people and not God. And that's really what it comes down to, doesn't it? Who do you fear? Is it God? Or is it somebody's opinion? God had chosen his lamb. His lamb was prepared for the offering. His lamb must be offered on the prescribed day because that's the only hope any of us have. Father in heaven, we come to you, Lord, humbled and uh, thankful, knowing that Jesus Christ willingly offered himself on our behalf, shed his innocent blood for those who were guilty. I thank you, Lord, that I had a young man come to me and share the gospel. And that your spirit convicted my heart and that, Father, I repented and believed in Jesus Christ as my Savior. I pray that there is no one in here uh, that has not done that. But if there is someone here that hasn't done that, I pray that this very hour, this very day, they would get that settled. We thank you, Father, for Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Passover lamb that taketh away the sin of the world. In his name we pray. Amen.